Recovery Elevator, episode 237. But I no longer wanted my day-to-day life to be anything other than what I wanted it to be. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. On today's podcast, we have Aisha. She took her last drink on July 28, 2017. She's from Atlanta, Georgia, and she's 42 years old. In the interview, she talks about how she drank because she always wanted to fit in. I know a lot of you are going to relate to Aisha. The book, Alcohol is Shit, comes out in five days this upcoming Saturday. Also happening that day is my five-year alcohol-free date. Huh. Coincidence? Who knows? But that worked out okay. Hells yes. Thank you everyone who has helped make this book happen, and that thank you is extended to you, the listener. Without you all, this book doesn't happen. It's that simple. Thanks to the launch team and everyone who has contributed to the book. This Saturday, September 7, the book will go live on Amazon. You can order the book in paperback or get it instantly via Kindle and the audiobook on Audible. If you like the book, help me spread the word. Leave a review on Amazon. We have to start talking about how our society has been completely duped by alcohol. Speaking of, I did a TEDx video titled, I've Been Duped by Alcohol. Uh, Check it out on YouTube. One more thing. January 20th to the 31st, we've got an alcohol-free travel itinerary to Thailand and Cambodia, Southeast Asia. Space is limited and go to recoveryelevator.com for full itinerary and details. Okay, let's get started. There are a crap ton of celebrities who have ditched the booze. Here's a few. Demi Lovato, Russell Brand, Jason Biggs, American Pie, Nicole Richie, Kelly Osborne, Elizabeth Vargas, Dax Shepard, Oprah, Bradley Cooper, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Downey Jr., Rob Lowe, Brad Pitt, Dennis Rodman, Steve Austin, Zac Efron, Dane Cook, Daniel Radcliffe, Colin Farrell. Hang on a second. There's so many of these people. I got to take a sip of water. Hang on. Take a break. Okay, I'm back. Kat Von D, Eric Clapton, Tim McGraw, Eddie Falco, Danny Trejo, Travis Barker, Eminem, Jamie Lee Curtis, Sir Elton John, Carrie Fisher, Stephen Tylan, Jesus Christ, this list is long, Kirsten Davis, Toby McGuire, Alex Baldwin, Gerard Butler, Jada Pinkett Smith, Macklemore, anybody else? Jesus. Whoa, that's, that, that, that's about Hollywood. That, that includes everyone. Oh, wait. And probably soon to join the list are David Hasselhoff, Michelle Rodriguez, Justin Bieber, hopefully Johnny Menzel, and possibly Wiz Khalifa. Okay, so roughly 10 to 12% of the general population struggle with an alcohol use disorder, an AUD, or EDR, enhanced dopamine receptors. But with this group of creative individuals, it's much higher. A few years back, I read an article that put it around 35 to 45% of celebrities struggle with addiction, and it's estimated that that's most likely a low estimate. So why is this group affected by addiction way more than the average population? I mean, they seem to have it all. Money, fame, mansions, private jets, helicopters, boats, yachts, a Tesla for each day of the week. So why? I mean, don't you want to be a celebrity, be famous, be known, recognized, and accepted wherever you go? Well, let's take a deeper look into what a celebrity life actually looks like, how it unfolds, and then I'm going to tie it in with the fundamental theme you've been hearing on this podcast for years. Becoming a celebrity is an extremely difficult and lonely journey as suddenly everyone you know changes, and all of a sudden everyone's your friend, and you don't know who wants to genuinely be your friend because you are you, or because you're famous. You now have money and fame, which unfortunately is what our society has made contemporaneous with you've made it, you're a success. So from you, everyone wants a loan, a job, a car, a limo ride, a selfie for their own Instagram account. You begin to pull away and find you can only trust a very small group of people, Perhaps your immediate family. Members of your extended family by this time are contacting you for favors. As everyone's motives become suspect, you begin to pull away from everyone you knew. Your hometown becomes difficult to travel in. As you get more famous and recognized, it becomes impossible to go out in public. You are hounded by autograph seekers. Of course, you're flattered at first, and they do pay your paycheck, so you feel you somewhat owe it to them. 
over time, this takes a toll on your energies. You can no longer go out to your favorite restaurants and your hometown doesn't feel so hometownish anymore. And so you begin to spend all your time in LA. Everyone's famous in Hollywood, so it's a lot easier to move freely and not get bothered. Since you are no longer close to your old friends or family, you begin to spend all your time with other celebrities. They know what you're going through and can always relate. However, you begin to find yourself living in a tighter and tighter bubble. Even though it's LA, you still feel stifled and you can't go out like you used to. More and more, you hibernate in your large mansion in the Hollywood Hills. You begin to fall in with the wrong crowd. By now, it's only a few celebrities you hang out with, but also their dealers, who begin to spend more time at your house. The other big stress of the job is the constant threat you could lose it tomorrow. There is absolutely no job security, and a bad couple movies in a row, and you could find the phone doesn't ring anymore. Even with the fame that you have, you're constantly having to hustle to get your agent to get you auditions for the latest films. The roles aren't coming up like they used to. Now you're 50, and the roles are drying up. Fuck, that sounds miserable. So let me summarize that, that painful progression. One word, disconnection. This is the primary driver of addiction. The greater the degree of disconnection, the larger the pull for an external substance. We did this with alcohol to create a temporary bridge connection within with the heart and soul inside. The opposite of addiction is connection, and this is one of the most disconnected roles, identities, professions on the planet. I mean, if you're an actor or actress, a big part of your job is to be someone else. Now, a memorable performance on stage or on screen is without a doubt a work of art, but for some, their job is to be someone they aren't for the duration of their career and possibly lives. No fucking thank you. Now, this takes a toll. And in the past couple years alone, we've lost some incredible individuals. Beautiful souls such as Ivici, Prince, Tom Petty, Whitney Houston, Chester from Lincoln Park, Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberries, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Heath Ledger, Chris Farley, Scott Weiland, The King, Elvis. And this is only naming a few. So guys, if you do see a celebrity in public, respect their space. Don't be that guy. They are seeking the same thing you are, love and connection. If you see a celebrity in public, energetically send them love. Try saying hello that way. So the point of this episode was twofold. You didn't know, but you got two episodes in one. Dos por uno. See, Number one, more now than ever, and this is great news, we are starting to wake up and realize that alcohol has fucked a lot of shit up. And it's so cool to see people in these positions ditching the booze and they are talking about it. The other point, be careful. Know the grass isn't greener on the other side and being famous can kill you. Again, if you do see a person well-known, respected that's in the spotlight, please give them space. Send them love energetically. It's what they need. A life could be at stake. You never know. I hope you enjoyed my section of this podcast episode. I had a great time putting it together. And before we hear from Aisha, let's hear from today's sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process, but today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. At ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R, ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Aisha, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paul? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And listeners, this might be the first podcast interview I've done where the interviewee is on the beach. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yes, I am on the beach. I'm at Miramar Beach in Destin, Florida for a oh, vacation. Oh, did you hear Destin? Is that what you heard? Yes. 
Yeah, okay. Just for those listeners, including myself, who can't quite imagine what you're looking at right now. What, do, you, do you see palm trees? Do you see a sailboat, maybe a seagull or two? What are you, what are you looking at? So I am looking at the ocean from the balcony, and I'm looking at this ocean amusement park that they've put up that has like a slide and all these other fun things that people are having fun on. Bumper cars? Not bumper cars, but I mean, like they've got like a trampoline out there and they've got like these four little pods you can stand on in the water. It looks really cool. Yeah. Well, okay. Aisha, let's get into this. When was your last drink? My last drink was on July 28th, 2017. Wow. Congratulations. And listeners, as we are recording this, it is July 31st. Aisha just hit two years alcohol-free. Nice job, Aisha. How does it feel? Thank you. It feels amazing. feels liberating and exhilarating as well. What did you do on your two-year date? I actually didn't do much. I am a part of um, Alcoholics Anonymous and... My celebration is coming up in the next few weeks, so I pretty much a regular day for me. So I, I have to say, when I first woke up, I was feeling pretty excited like that I've made it this far. When I first started the podcast, Aisha, I came across a stat on a reputable site that gave me some sobriety fuel, but uh, it, and it was that 5% of 5% make it to two years. So 5% of people make it 90 days. Oh, wow. And then 5% okay. of those people who make it to 90 days make it to two years. That's 2.5 people out of 1,000. Now, I actually refrain wow. from saying stats on these podcasts, recovery stats. In fact, Aisha, I have a book coming out shortly. I deleted that entire chapter about the current state of addiction because what's the point? We don't need to talk about stats. Right. We know this is difficult, and the stats, um, they can be bleak at times. And about, one thing about that yep. stat is it doesn't mention that we can start over as many times as we want, right? So, like, I didn't make the two right. years on my first attempt, like, hundreds yep. of times. And so I just want to say, yep. what an incredible accomplishment that is, Aisha, and, and nice job. Thank you. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that you deleted that chapter because I will tell you, I, I got sober about 11 or 12 days before January 29th, which was my first, you know, 24 hours hours of sobriety. And part of it was because at a meeting, an AA meeting I was at, I told someone like, I, you know, I've I've got five days of sobriety. And uh, the response was, huh, talk to me when you get a year. And I was so overwhelmed that I, I, I had a drink that night. So, yeah. Yeah. Aisha, I would like to reach through the interwebs and (laughs) slap whoever the hell said something so incorrect is that because anybody who gets any amount of time away from alcohol who makes that plunge uh, is incredible work. And, um, yeah, it's not what you wanted to hear. It's not what you shouldn't have heard. And that's, the, you know, AA is a great program, but uh, as, as somebody, <laughs> a piece of advice I heard was <laughs> the worst part about AA is the people. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> Aisha, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? So I am 42 years old. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a lawyer. I am married with a 10-year-old. I I practice family law, so I I do divorces and custody disputes and represent children whose parents are going through custody disputes. And what I like to do for fun since becoming sober is eat. So I've gained weight since I've become sober. Good for you. um, I'm trying to... (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to get back to the place where I was when I was actively drinking, when I used to run like 20 to 25 miles a week, starting with, you know, 20 minute walks as often as I can. I also really like to read. I like to read memoirs of people who have suffered through and recovered from and are recovering from addiction, along with fiction books. Real quick, with uh, with the family law, you, said you you deal with custody disputes. How often do you see or perceive that alcohol is involved in that? Oh my gosh, over seventy five percent of the time. Wow, yeah, and that that's kind of yep. why I imagined. I just wanted to ask, and, and and listeners, the reason why I say good for you on gaining weight is if you like to eat, go for it, right? And and maybe the time <laughs> might come when your body will tell you. 
Um, and that's the, the order we need to go in. The body will tell us first if, if it's time to lose that weight. And I encourage listeners yeah. to throw out all expectations before embarking upon this journey, especially in early sobriety. Many uh, use, use losing weight as a goal to ditch the booze. And then what happens when you know, you're drinking? For, for, for an example, some people are deprived of vitamins, nutrients, and all their caloric intake is derived from alcohol. What happens when they ditch the booze and start eating healthy food? People might gain 10 to 15 pounds that their body needs. Yeah. So just throw out expectations. Yes, yes. It's along with along with the liberation that comes from being alcohol free every day is I have I have also and maybe this is also a function of big big turning forty, but I've also released myself from a lot of societal pressure about how we should look and you know what what we should aspire to look like and, and that has been a sort of secondary gift that sobriety has given me. I want to dive into I that real quick. That. How did you yeah. release some of that societal pressure? Because that, that's a big one. Well, I come from a family where, where both of my parents are alcoholic. My, my mother has been recovered for several years, though I was not raised by her. My father passed away when I was 22 years old, so almost 20 sure. years ago. And he was an alcoholic. And I was raised in rural America. I'm African-American and Hispanic. I was raised in rural America. Didn't necessarily see a lot of people who looked like me and was always trying to fit in. And as I, you know, got older and became a teacher and then a lawyer, I, I, I was always trying to fit in. And part of why I began to drink alcoholically was also because I was trying to fit in. I didn't drink in college because of memories of my parents. I started drinking after college. And when I went to law school, drank more with my classmates and became an attorney. And attorneys are notoriously heavy drinkers. And so I had to really dig dig in and dive into, you know, why I drank. And there's a lot of trauma around that as well. But part of it was me trying to fit in. And so in abandoning that sort of byproduct of my, my past, I had to realize that there were other things in my life that I was doing because I was trying to fit in. And one of them was always trying to be so thin and and look like a person who doesn't have my body type. And so as I, I went through AA and I started accepting myself for who I was, I intentionally you know, wrote out, these are things I'm doing, not necessarily because I want to do them. In fact, what do I want to do? And that in and of itself was a process, but I no longer wanted my day-to-day -day life to be anything other than what I wanted it to be. Aisha, there's a lot to unpack there. We went deep <laughs> fast. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, Paul. No, that was perfect. That was incredible. I love your response <laughs> there. And at the tail end, you mentioned that you've made a shift to doing what you want to do. And that's a shift that I've had to make in an alcohol-free life and I, that I wasn't aware of that many of the decisions I was making was from an unconscious perspective that I was doing something because I didn't want something to happen in the future. And if you back it up, I wouldn't want to be doing that thing in the first place. So I would A, do something in hopes to B, to prevent something, a negative outcome from happening. And that mindset yeah. was no bueno. I think I was like year three. I was like, holy buckets. And I've been doing a lot of work mm -hmm. on that to doing things out of love and doing things that I want to do them and not out of fear that a negative outcome will happen. I absolutely love it. Yeah, let's dive more into your drinking. Give us a little more background. Sure. How much did you drink and when did you first realize it was a problem? You mentioned law school. I've heard that's just a three-year party. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And did you have yeah. a rock bottom yeah. moment? Um, take a couple minutes and get us up yeah. to speed. Sure. So I, I was a member of a program called Teach for America after college. And that's where I had my first couple of drinks, was not drinking alcoholically while teaching, left teaching, became a recruiter, a lot more ne networking events, a lot more reaching out to people and taking people out to dinner. So there was more of a frequency of drinking. Then when I got to law school, it was exactly as you said, it was, it was a three-year extremely stressful party. Um, <laughs> aside from having a child, 
um, law school and t- sitting for the bar are two of the hardest things I've done. Wow. And alcohol certainly became, yeah, a refuge of sorts. I started drinking alcoholically, though, after I started practicing law. In particular, lawyers, as I said earlier, are very heavy drinkers. There's a lot of networking events. But I actually had a very unfortunate um, circumstance happen to me where I was I was in a situation where the FBI was protecting my house. And Whoa. I, yeah, I was threatened by a litigant and... It, it sent me into a very fast spiral where I was drinking probably, a, I don't know the sizes, but I do know that it, I, I, I drank Ciroc and the bottle was $40 and I was drinking almost an entire bottle of vodka a day because I was, I was, I had such a tremendous response to that, that threat and what it meant. Let when, me interrupt here for a second, yeah. and we oftentimes sure. we hear the word self-medicating, and it has negative connotations, but it's actually a coping strategy. It's, it's a survival mechanism. You were self-medicating in an incredibly stressful time, and that's what many of us do with alcohol, but it, it, does that sound yeah. correct? It's absolutely spot on, Paul. Like When I was awake during that time, if I heard a, a noise, I would jump and just, I was so scared. I couldn't... I, it was it was a time of absolute insanity, and I was I was coping by drinking enough so that I wasn't awake because yeah, I no could kidding. not deal with the possibility every day. Now now I will say this I mean and I kind of brushed by sort of the you know the recruiting and the the law school drinking, but it, it, it happened very fast. That situation happened, and for four months I was literally passed out every single day and I've shared my story a couple of times and what happened to me was that I I missed the toilet call and the the person who threatened me was in jail and I was just like what are you doing wow (laughs) you're you're 40 years old and you missed the toilet that was my bottom and so I, I I'd known you know through that process like this isn't normal. I called my therapist to help me deal with the trauma, but I was so scared. I couldn't leave the house to get to her. So I drank enough, passed out, slept through the appointment. But after I missed the toilet, I, I was, I was pretty much like, okay, you know how this ends. Grandma died of cirrhosis of the liver. You were in three drunk driving accidents with your mother. You were in a whole you know, hell of a lot of significant and dangerous situations with, with your father when he was drunk, you are going to get there. And the way you're moving, you're going to get there fast. So y- you need to stop. Okay, hang on a and, second. And yeah. I, you say, <laughs> you say, I know where this is going. And I, for, yeah. for a lot of people, when they reach this point, it's not much of a mystery. In fact, in 2014, uh, I also knew mm-hmm. where it was going, but I couldn't quit. And a lot of people have doctors, medical professionals tell people where it's going. There had to have been something else in there that finally made you hit that tipping point to make a huge change in your life. Can you think back? Was it, we've heard like the moment of clarity. Was there a rock bottom moment? Or was it more of a thing where you realized you had a conscious moment where you realized that threat was actually behind bars, no longer physically able to reach you. And you, there was some consciousness where you could move forward. What happened? Well, so the threat, the threat was in jail, but I was still drinking alcoholically. And so I don't want to, I absolutely share, you know, I knew before I started drinking, like where it could lead. I, I'm a very type A person, Paul. I'm, I was the, the goody two shoes, the person who always did the extra credit, the person who, you know, who, who was fitting in, the person who, you know, my family's proud of. I'm the first person in my family to have a professional degree. Even though a lot of that pressure, like like the body image pressure I've learned is, is negative, there was also a positive in that I didn't want my daughter to have the experience I had. I didn't want my law firm to fail. I employ people. They have families. And when I missed the toilet, it, it was almost akin to watching all of that go down 
the toilet. <laughs> and and I, I got, I got a, I've heard a lot of colloquial <laughs> phrases. What does miss the toilet mean? At first, I thought you, you meant like your rock bottom moment was you went to throw up or, or, or use the restroom and you just missed the toilet. But I think, what does this mean? <laughs> Fill me in. No, it means that I took a shit on the floor, Paul, and I, I thought I was on the toilet. Oh, this okay, this is not a metaphor. <laughs> no, this yes. is not a metaphor. Okay, since you opened up about this, Aisha, I got to open up to the audience about something else. In my fantasy football league, there is a debate that happens every single draft, and we're going to have it in San Diego in three weeks, I can guarantee it, where me and my buddy TJ were, were sharing a room, and we woke up in the morning, and there was, uh, yeah, somebody took a deuce on the floor. And I was drinking at the time. I'm I'm 100% sure it wasn't me. He's 100% sure it wasn't him. There are some other factors like this the plot actually goes pretty far deep like there was other people in the room, etc. But we have this we have this debate every effing draft for like an hour. Even to the point like I want if there anyways. All right, thank you. And now I've come clean to yeah. about that. Thank you. Good stuff. <laughs> we can now proceed. Missing the toilet literally yeah. means we just did not hit the toilet. And I there's a small chance right. when I was drinking I also didn't hit the toilet. 99% sure it wasn't me, though. Right, right. Well, see, see at least you had, there, there's a question of who. In my situation, it <laughs> yeah, was that right. there was no other possibility. You can't point the finger. It's you. <laughs> yeah. Yes, just me. I, I was mortified, mortified. But, but I, don't want, I don't want you to, I, I want you to understand that I, I was, that was my bottom in the sense that, Aisha, you have a problem. You need help. But I didn't stop drinking, you know, a meet, like that day or the next day. But I did go to an AA meeting and um, had a had a, a an interesting an interesting meeting. I think I've heard other people on your blog talk a little bit about going to their first meeting and and not identifying with the stories they heard or the people they met. I definitely had that experience, and so I went home and drank that night because. That clearly wasn't the place for me. Well, someone um, also the, had an the, incredibly condescending remark to you as well, right? That happened a couple of days after. Ah, um, okay. I went to my first. Yeah, so well, my first. Back it up. Tell us about the a, focusing on the differences and not the similarities. That concept. Tell us a bit more about that. So I think the difference for me was that when I went when I went to AA, I was legitimately looking for help. Like, uh, you know, I, I've I've missed the toilet. I've I have not not drank, you know, a bottle of vodka in a day for a couple of months now. H how do I stop? And when I went to that meeting, the person shared about how he had drunkenly ran over and 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 dragged and killed his neighbor and Whoa. spent five years in prison and walked out of prison and began drinking that day. And I was like, holy crap like uh, yeah, this is, that, that's this easy is, to tell yourself that's not me yeah yeah complete complete you know crazy crazy pants thinking so then I spoke with a family member who's also um, in recovery and was encouraged to go to another meeting and that that other meeting that's when the comment was that I, I only had a couple of days but I, I didn't let it not give, I, I didn't let that experience with the first meeting keep me away. But the comments that happened at a subsequent AA meeting, I went back to drinking. So between the toilet incident and July 28th, I think there were about 12 days in between the, in which I, I pretty much drank most of those days except for five. And that's a huge win, except for five. You were drinking a bottle, a significant amount of vodka daily in Ciroc format for two months. So even yeah. five days in that time yeah. frame is a huge success. And listeners, somebody who says, come talk to me after a year, if you've only got five days, that's an example of, of someone who's placed too much emphasis on sobriety time, on a tracker, on a clock, and worth. And another, another example of somebody who's fully identified with a thinking mind. The ego is strong with, the, with that one. And yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so glad you went back. You kept going back. And what do you think finally pushed Thank you over you. the edge to, to get to start logging the time to make it? Well, so um, one of the things that I was encouraged to do by my family member was to not let one poor experience with AA 
define or or discourage me from sobriety. And so what I did was I, I started going to meetings all over Atlanta. And what really did it for me was a meeting that I went to that was a celebration meeting, which meant that certain people were collecting year chips, you know, celebrate their sobriety. And I got there early. Um, I was so nervous to walk in because I was hungover. And I walked in and a woman came over to me and she introduced herself to me and she gave me a hug and said, you know, welcome. She'd asked me how long I'd been sober for. And I said, you know, a few hours. And she gave me this really big hug and she's like, I'm so glad you're here. And she and I are really good friends till this day. And that meeting just, I felt a love in that meeting that I don't think I've really ever felt before. And that there was so much love and I felt important. I wasn't put on the spot. I, it was just, a, I was in fully embraced as I was. And we had the celebration and one of the celebrants who was celebrating her 11th year of sobriety, she gave me her year chip and gave me a hug. I mean, there were a lot of tears in that meeting, but I would say, so that's one of my frequent meetings that I still go to, but I think I went to about 25 different meetings before I settled on the meeting that I go to regularly. <laughs> yeah. I, Aisha, the, the, what you said, you felt loved and encouraged and accepted and that right there's a microcosm of how we need to treat addiction for example we hear a war on drugs or a war on whatever and that just says it's doomed to fail from the start a war on drugs is yeah. basically the bass backwards way to to say we're also having a war on addiction this is how we're going to fight addiction right and we incarcerate addiction out of people that's the macro scale but on the micro scale internally we incarcerate ourselves i did this personally with shame guilt self-loathing paul you piece of effing shit etc and you walk yep. into a meeting and i'm so glad you kept going to them and you you, yeah. you you feel love you feel compassion you feel accepted and sounds like that was a huge turning point in your journey huge 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 paul huge so, so I'll, I'll tell you I, I think i started to um share this but i didn't finish the thought as as i've you know accrued a little bit of time after becoming sober i can look back prior to the time i was threatened and I can see times when I drank that that were problematic. The peak happened quickly, but there was certainly a buildup. And one of the, the buildups was that I think in 2015, for July 4th, we, we my husband and I, we, we bought some new types of alcohol. We had a little party going. And I drank a whole bottle of Crown Royal. Paul, I'm not a Crown Royal person. I, I, I never liked Crown Royal. Yeah, but I wasn't was a cheap Crown box Royal wine Apple. person either. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. It, well, it was the Crown Royal Apple. Mm. I, I drank the entire bottle and ended up calling my daughter, who was five or six at the time. I called her a bitch. Oh, wow. And so at one of these meetings, so once I found this group of people that I could identify with, I felt comfortable with, you know, I, I listened a lot and then slowly I started sharing and a lot of my sharing would be the guilt, the self-loathing, the shame. Gosh, I'm going to get a little period thinking about this, but one of the members, like as I'm bawling my eyes out, she, she said, Aisha, come here. And she took me out of the meeting and she took me to the bathroom and she said, I want you to look at yourself in the mirror. And she said, I want you to say, Aisha, I forgive you. And I, like, it took me forever to do it, but I did it. And then I talked to her afterward. And, man, I released so much of that that pain that, that is associated with the guilt because there was a lot of it. <laughs> there was Aisha, a lot. You were, you're on the fast track on both ends of that. <laughs> it ramped up quick at the <laughs> end, and then when you quit drinking, you made a lot of progress fast. And, and listeners, that, that stuff has to happen, the resentments. And often when we hear resentments, we think, oh, against other people who I don't know if I'm really you know, resenting anybody else. Look inside. Often there's a tremendous resentment held against ourselves. And that stuff has to go mm -hmm. unconditionally, unequivocally. It all has to go no matter what at the conscious and unconscious level. It has to go. So what did it yeah. look like after yeah. you looked yourself in the eyes in the mirror and you let it go? What happened after that? For me, the, the guilt and the self-loathing was very much a block 
to getting to some of the things that I saw other people in my AA group, what I saw they had that I wanted. So I actually have two, two main groups that I go to. And in one of the groups, it is like a pure comedy show. No one ever told me <laughs> that, that I would leave an AA meeting like with the amount of, of laughter and the, you know, the stomach pains that I would have from going to this meeting, but I go to this meeting and everyone's laughing and I'm like this, they're very, very serious about sobriety, but there is a lot of laughter and love. And I wanted that. Mm. I wanted to be, I wanted to be able, it took me a long time to, to be able to share that, well, no, I, I dropped a deuce on the floor, but I thought I was on the toilet. So that's how drunk I was. It took me a long time to be able to share that. But let's face it, that's funny. I'm so <laughs> like, glad you shared it, Aisha. <laughs> I'm so glad it came out about my poop story. All right, I'm like 90% yeah, sure right? it wasn't me. Before it was like 100. I'm like, I'm, yeah. I'm 85, I'm 65%. Sure. I'm 50. Okay, we know where this is going. I got to stop talking. <laughs> so, so that that was one thing I really I wanted to get to. The other group is a women's group and there's a lot of there's a lot of I'll say spirituality in that room. There's a lot of self-reflection, there's a lot of personal responsibility and it's all couched in love. And those first few months, those first several months, I wasn't able to really receive or give in a way that was loving and non-judgmental because I was still so stuck in my own shame. It didn't all go away when she, you know, had me say this to myself in the mirror, but it became more of a conscious effort on my part that I can't change the path. I can acknowledge it. I can accept full responsibility from it, but forgiving myself. And I heard this from Oprah several years ago is, is really giving up the hope that the past could have been any different. And when we're sitting in our self-loathing and self-hatred about things that we have already done, we are really hoping that we can change the past, and we can't. And so what it meant for me was, again, just accepting and acknowledging what the past was. It was unhealthy. It was riddled with dishonesty because as an alcoholic, you know, in order for, for me to maintain my alcoholism, there was a lot of dishonesty. I had to, I had to get rid of, of that expectation, Paul. And when I did, I was then able to receive and understand and start because I'm certainly in no way uh, finished and hope to never be finished with this journey, but to start to unpack, how did I get here? Why did I get here? What was I suppressing? In addition to this incident that, you know, set me off to the races, there's a whole lot of other stuff that it actually dug up for me that I'd never dealt with. And so it it allowed me a space to start doing that. Aisha, I'm going to go somewhere right now on this podcast that I've yet to go. And I know I'm going to lose some listeners. And I hope you track with me here. Um, and I love me some soul okay. conversations with Oprah. And I love what you said. We need to give up hope <laughs> that the past could ever be different. And here we go. Stick with me for a second here. We also need to give up okay. hope that the future will be any different. Now, here's where this gets confusing. We've heard the word hope <laughs> tied or is analogous with, uh, w- with, with joy and happiness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with hope, which is a fantastic concept, and not, uh, don't get me wrong here, but where is hope located? If we dive into that, hope is always located at a different moment than now. In my entire life, I've been positive, I've been optimistic, which are great traits to have, but I had set some traps. I, had, I was continuously hoping for a better future, which already right there eliminated any possibility of the current moment that I found myself in, which here we are right now at 3.39 p.m. on July 31st. If you continue hoping for the future, there, there's no possible chance of it being okay right now. Does that make any sense, yeah. Aisha? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. it's a now or never concept. Absolutely. And that is something that I, I, I have had to acknowledge in myself that 
was something I something I also did in my active addiction and and after I stopped and it, and because I I've, I've seen it I also recognize it in my daughter so my daughter we're at the beach right now I just got out of the pool a little while ago we're in the pool and she's like well mom when I graduate from fifth grade and I said well hold on a second there we go you haven't even started fifth grade mm-hmm. so you're starting, you're starting fifth grade in a couple of days, but right now we're at the beach, we're in the pool, we're diving for rings. Let's just enjoy that. And she's always, I mean, always, what are we going to do tomorrow? What happens next week? And I have to bring her to the, the present. And, you know, the way, the, the way that the universe works, is, especially when with children, is they, they marry you. They reflect back to you what... You do. And when I was actively drinking, Paul, I would say, well, tomorrow I'm only going to have, you know, the rest of this bottle. I'm not going to stop at the liquor store and get another bottle. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what you did. Aisha, <laughs> a life without alcohol has given me countless gifts and rewards, and I know it will continue to do so as, all, as long as I remain alcohol-free. But this, uh, I'd have to say, is the biggest one by far is to recognize that it's now or never. And this implies with everything. It's happiness. It's self-worth. It's eliminating the shame and guilt. You can't eliminate the shame and guilt tomorrow. It has to be right now. And it can happen any moment. You know, consciously, I've heard this before, but I remember it's about eight months. eh, It's been a a little over a year. When that moment, when that realization hit the unconscious as well, and that's when the ball started to roll fast. It's it's exciting stuff. Uh I'm I'm loving this conversation with you. And is this still? How's the beach looking? Still doing good? We're still we're doing awesome, Paul. We're doing awesome. Let's back it up a little (laughs) bit to the why. I mean, you you went right into this, and you you started to leapfrog some stuff in, in in just a couple months away from alcohol. You talked about always fitting in, and I asked you how did you detach from the persona that society wants to be with a slimmer figure, et cetera. And you, you dove into that deep and you said, well, I even went back further and I saw that I always wanted to fit in to be what people thought I wanted to be. How has that softened and how, how has that changed? Well, I'm much more purposeful and I'm much more focused on the whys of, of doing things. So, so one of the things is, and and I think most people who've known me, for a long time, they actually wouldn't classify me as someone who's trying to fit in. I'm the oldest of five. I'm kind of bossy. I'm very much a, okay, here's the problem. Let's fix it. But I think growing up the way that I I did, I had a lot of responsibility at a very young age. And so in adulthood, I have kept that going. Oh, you want to start your own law firm? Start your own law firm. You want to hire staff? Hire staff. And Failure, in my mind, has never been an option. And all of that pressure that I put on myself as I got older, it led to me needing the estate. And so now, for example, my firm, fortunately, is doing really well. Not surprised. Um, and as, as a sober firm owner and attorney. Do they know you're sober? So that's an interesting question. Your, your, your team, I mean. People know that I don't drink. But if, unless it comes up, I don't, I don't really share that. Sure. I, I have met a couple of other attorneys in recovery who have, you know, heavily cautioned me about being public with my addiction. But I, I, I have a very different take on that. My, my take is, well, I think one of the problems in the legal field anyway is that it's rampant with addicts. It's rampant with suicide and those people who are actually recovering from it or at least trying to recover from it are behind the curtain. So I'm not trying to hide it, but I have and I've told a couple of other professionals that, you know, if there's another attorney who's struggling, feel free to give them my number. Yeah, good job. Um, Yeah, because I would have liked to have been able to know, like, other than the the bar hotline that says you can call if you're having problems. I would have liked to know someone who has gone through an addiction or an alcoholic issue or, and, and they're working to resolve it. And I didn't have anybody. I didn't know one person. So I kind of lost my train of thought though on the question we were talking about before. I'm 
Yeah, I am real good at interrupting people and totally derailing all thoughts. <laughs> but, uh, okay. I think I think what we were talking about was just how how the sort of wanting to fit in and oh, yeah. and how that's changed for me now. I mean, I think I'm in a much better position to think through, okay, why are you doing all of this? Are you doing all of this because of the financial benefits? Are you doing this because of the benefit that and the, the feeling that you feel when you're helping people, but I'm not as good at it yet. Like for, for example, I take on a lot of cases and when I probably should pump the brakes sometimes, but I, I know why I do that. And so my office manager and I have had conversations around, you know, this is where I, this is where I need some help. Like I do want to help everybody and I can't. So help me when we're inundated with, responsibility help me figure out what I need to be thinking about so that way the two of us can come up with a resolution that is going to work for the entire firm the other thing is I I do utilize my resources in recovery you know not as much as um, they meaning the AA my sponsor and my groups they would probably like but I, I do reach out when necessary or when I feel like I need help I have some amazing friends who can help ground me. You know, I had a friend once tell me, Aisha, you're just so strong. Like I would, I would really hate to, to tell you anything that would criticize you because I feel like, you know, you would just take that so wrong. And I was like, really? And mm. I said, the people who are closest to me are the people who will tell me when or, or how I could do something better. Ironically, in my addiction, I isolated. And so I didn't really, you know, have mm -hmm. a whole lot of close friends. But now I seek out like, well, do you, you know, do you think I should be doing it this way? Or do you have a better way? Or can you talk to me about how you're doing it so that, you know, I might be able to make some tweaks to, to how I'm doing things. I'm much more open and solicitive of feedback and ideas than I was before. Yeah, and part of it is you're because asking for help. I'm sober. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. Aisha, you're dropping value bombs left and right. And earlier you mentioned you started asking why. Why do I do this? Why do I do this? And listeners, that's like 90% of 90 of it right there. Just start asking why. Just say, why do I do this? Why? You might not know why you drink. I had to ask these same questions myself. Why, why, why? The answer comes. Really nothing else has to happen. There's nothing to fix because awareness alone, it sounds like you got it. Awareness alone should transmute and dissolve the bulk of it. And, and Aisha, I got one more question before we hit the, hit the rapid yeah. fire round. Are you ready? Well, not quite. <laughs> one more question. And then I ask you, are you ready? Um, <laughs> in these last two years, have you had a difficult or dicey moment where you thought you were going to drink? And how'd you get through it? I have not, Paul. And I, I am very, very fortunate in that way in that the smell of alcohol actually disgusts me now. And I think that's something that was always the, the case, but in attempting to be my authentic self, I, I don't like how it smells. I, you know, my, my husband drinks occasionally and we, we used to have parties all the time, boxing parties, football parties. And I would always be the person to like clean up and pick up. And after becoming sober, he, and we didn't have alcohol in the house for about three months. And then he asked me if it would be okay. And I said, I think it's okay. And it was okay. We had a party and I cleaned up and I like had, you know, like when you smell something and you, you're going to throw up. Um, yeah, I remember when I walked into the bathroom bad. in Las Vegas at my fantasy football draft. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Yes. That's how alcohol smells to me now. It, so I told him, I said, I'm not going to be able to clean this up because it really makes me puke. However, have I had those FOMO moments of... Mm -hmm you know, wow, like, I really can't drink. Yeah, of course I have. I just went to Belize with a group of 11 of my friends from college. And the place that we went to sent out all these emails before we went. And I can be kind of last minute when it comes to things like that. So the day before we left, I read all the emails and I, I noticed how much alcohol was mentioned. You know, it, it feels kind of shitty. Like, I can't I can't do these things. So what I said was, okay, I'm going to email them. I emailed the resort, and I said, you know, I, I finally read everything. I know we're coming in, like, damn for tomorrow. But so I apologize for the late notice, but I want you to know that I don't drink alcohol. Good for you. And, you know, they're, 
there's a lot of alcohol related things. And so, you know, I, I don't want to be, I'm still cool. I can still, I'm going to still hang out and have fun, but alcohol is not part of my, my day to day, my, my thing. So they wrote me back. I was really surprised. And they were like, Oh, no problem. You know, we've had people come before who, who don't drink, like, this is not a big deal. So I'm like, okay, so now they know. Well, we go to the, we go to the airport, we get on this little tiny boat, we go to the island, and as soon as you get off the island, they hand you these drinks called hurricanes. And I was one of the first people who got off the boat, and so I'm like, oh, this is like a sticky moment that you know I was not looking forward to. So I tell the person holding the drinks, I was like, oh yeah, I don't I don't drink alcohol, and they were like, oh, well, we have a virgin one for you because we knew that there was someone in your party who didn't drink alcohol, and I was like what <laughs> oh i love um, this story I was, so much so much yes yeah, so that's the response yes, you're gonna was, get back from a from a company or tour company <laughs> and they had a, the other one just for you gosh this is boundaries with a capital yes. b yes 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 so so paul they actually we stayed for how we were there for seven days and all three bartenders knew i didn't drink so anytime i would go to the bar like they would always say, like, well, can we try something new? And they ended up making two drinks, two mocktails. They named them after me. My friends who did drink alcohol ended up drinking my drinks. I mean, it ended up turning into this, like, you know, sober. Wow. It was awesome. It was amazing. So, yeah, I have had those FOMO moments of I wish I could, but I have not been – I have been fortunate that I've, I've not – stopped at a liquor store or, or bought anything. Now, what I will also say, because, you know, sometimes I, I get the feeling that people think my journey was just so easy. And, and what I want people to know, and what I want you to know is that I know for me, if I pick up again, and irrespective of the fact that it absolutely disgusts me, I, I know that my second, well, really third attempt at sobriety would be very, very difficult. I take the, the, the life and death of sobriety extremely seriously because the amount that I can drink, even though I'm not a super skinny woman, I, in fact, I'm not skinny at all, the amount that I can drink is scary and I will die. And that, that's what I tell myself. And that's part of what keeps me sober. I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. You're right. It could happen. Yeah, I, I have. Those, yeah. I know exactly what will happen if I drink again. I know. I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> and we have reached yeah, the rapid exactly. fire round. If you could answer these questions within thirty okay. to sixty seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Number one, what is a memorable moment a life without alcohol has given you? A memorable moment would be going on vacation with my family, in particular my daughter, and waking up early with her having fun with her and remembering everything about the experience. No, I've done that now twice with her. This no. being the second time. Yeah. When, what's your favorite alcohol free drink? My favorite alcohol drink is bubbly mango. And I actually call it Buble from that Michael Buble commercial where he's changing all the Y's to E's with the accent. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I definitely am a fan of the sparkling water movement, but bubblies, or as I like to call them, bubblies, are my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I think you meant to say alcohol-free drink there, but I'm, I'm high on the, the bubblies these days and that mango one. It's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Alcohol-free. Yes. Next, next question. What are some of your favorite resources? You mentioned you've read a lot of alcohol uh, self-help books. Um, take a moment to rattle off a few. Yes. So in the Alcoholic Anonymous big book in the back there are stories oh, i love those stories people in recovery those are my absolute favorite 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 stories i can identify with almost all of them the first book that i read that i'll probably read again was a girl walks out of a bar because she was an attorney and i was early in sobriety and googling like books and that's one of my favorite books and i will say my my other favorite resource are people. I really enjoy the Cafe RE Facebook page. I've met a couple of people from the group. I love being able to have a place to go to read and to respond and to celebrate and to deal with tough issues. So I would say those, those books 
and that Facebook page. And then my meetings, my, my two groups are my favorite resources. And Aisha, what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? My bucket list, there are a lot of changes that I am in the process of making personally. I don't want to put them on, out on the podcast, but I think that within the next year, there are some things in my life that are going to look very different. Aisha, I think your powers of manifestation are strong. <laughs> I also Thank think they you. will happen. And before we go, what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners? What parting piece of advice I can give to listeners is that this is truly life and death, but it is also one day, one moment, one second at a time. As I shared in this interview, when I thought beyond the day that I was on, which in that case was, I think, day five, I failed. And, and even today, it is a day-to-day choice that I, I focus on in terms of not drinking. So if you're struggling in recovery, if you're new to recovery, it's easy to kind of um, get overwhelmed with people who have years or, or long periods of time. But I think one of the things they'll tell you is that this is, this is a one day at a time life and death process. So that becomes, that makes it more palatable and, and I think sets you up for a lot more success than thinking about way down in the future. So, And one more question. Give listeners your own yeah. customized that you might have. One well, question. Just like, we, need, we need your customized <laughs> you might have a drinking problem if line. You might have a drinking problem if uh, you're dropping a deuce and you're, you think you're on the toilet and when you get up, you're not even close to the toilet. Oh, I love it. And I <laughs> hope mine isn't true. Gosh. I almost admitted it. Oh, gosh, yeah. Aisha, all these interviews are fantastic, but this has been one of my favorites. I've loved chatting with you. Oh, I like chatting with you too, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. And hey, get get to a retreat sometime. I'd love to meet you in person. Yes, I would. I, I absolutely will. Have you been to Thailand? I haven't been to Thailand, oh. but that's where we're going next year, right? Fact, and I hope you come. Yeah. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, Aisha. Have a great rest of your day on the beach. Thank you, Paul. Take care. Who wants to learn some Spanish, some Espanol with me? I am going to be doing a one-month intensive language school in Oaxaca, Mexico, at the International Spanish Language School from October 7th to November 4th. Hey, let's do this. Why? Because why the hell not? In a life without alcohol, anything is possible. Anything. Also, because I sold three businesses in six months this year, I wrote a book, we had a kick-ass retreat, I'm going to go chill the F out. In fact, I'm in Costa Rica right now when this podcast episode comes out. I'm learning to surf, I'm watching sunrises, I'm eating anywhere from 15 to 20 mangoes a day. In fact, the goal today is to break my previous record of 13 mangoes, and I'm just not doing much. Oh yeah, and I've still got this idea in my mind that I cannot get rid of. And watch out when Paul Churchill, and yes, I did just refer to myself in the third person. Anyone seen that Seinfeld episode? Oh yeah, you all have. Jimmy like Elaine. Like I said, when I have an idea that I can't get out of my mind, this idea, goal, or vision usually happens. Sometimes I wish it weren't so, but that's the case. What's the idea? I'd like to open a wellness or a reconnect center where you can go unwind and reconnect. What will this look like? Well, not sure yet, but we will be reconnecting with other humans, the earth, the ocean, animals, the beach, and most importantly, we'll be reconnecting the heart and soul within. Where will this location be? Where will this incredible facility be housed? Well, I'm thinking not Montana because it's freezing in the winter times. I'd love to do it here, but not thinking that's going to work out. Perhaps somewhere in Mexico, Central America, Costa Rica. That's why I'm going to Southeast Asia. I will be checking out locations. So just out of curiosity, if you'd be interested in attending this facility, shoot me an email at paul at recoveryelevator.com. I'm curious to see what you think of this idea and if you'd be interested or you would, not even the interested part. Let me know if you would attend and what you'd like to see. Recovery Elevator, alcohol is shit and we both know it. I love you guys.